Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a mini episode of the Rights Up podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman, and in this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Anne Hanley, a junior research fellow at New College Oxford about the Contagious Diseases Acts, legislation passed in the UK in the 19th century to deal with the spread of venereal disease. This historical look at the law in relation to medicine has important implications for us today. In this episode, we're doing something a little different. Rather than rights up right now, this is really more like rights up right then. We're going back in time to talk about the Contagious Diseases Acts, a series of laws passed between 1864 and 1886 to curb the spread of venereal disease among military personnel in specific towns in the UK and Ireland. The laws targeted women, as prostitutes, for being carriers of disease, and under this legal framework, poor women were often accused, registered, subjected to forced examination, and incarcerated in prison-like hospitals for treatment. The laws were framed as a necessary measure to ensure public health, but in practice, they sought to contain and control social deviance. Women were conceptualized as both the repositories of and primary threats to moral and medical purity and as a result, they were subject to arbitrary arrest and inspection. Times have greatly changed since the Contagious Diseases Acts were in place. But what can we learn from a historical look at the way the law has dealt with disease and gender? I'm here with Anne Hanley, and she is going to tell us. Thank you for joining me, Anne. My pleasure. So I just gave an overview of these laws and how they operated in practice, but could you tell us a bit more about how the law actually was enforced? The law operated on a principle of discretionary power in many respects. Police officers in towns and cities under this legislation, and it wasn't all of the UK that was under this legislation, but in places like Southampton and Portsmouth. Police officers who uh, on the beat, for example, saw a woman who they thought might have been a prostitute, possibly because of the way that she dressed, whether she was um, wearing rouge or whether she was dressed in a very ostentatious way, whether she looked particularly poor. She could just even be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was very little, there was very little in the way of guidelines. <laughs> For, for these policemen. Um, so they, if they identified a woman who they thought was a prostitute, they could pick her up off the street, take her to a, before a magistrate, and she could be compelled to submit herself to an intrusive genital examination. And if she refused, she could be imprisoned, often with uh, hard labor. And if she did submit to an intrusive genital examination, and was found or thought to be infected. And there are many problems with diagnosis in this period. Um, if she was thought to be infected, she could be incarcerated in a lock hospital, so a hospital set aside for the treatment of venereal diseases and treated for up to nine months. What was the treatment of these diseases like in the 19th century? The treatment um, par excellence for syphilis was mercury. Um, and that could be diluted in a variety of um, mediums and administered in a variety of ways. So it could be rubbed into your skin as an ointment. 
It could be taken orally as a pill or suspended in a liquid. Later on in the century, it could be injected intramuscularly. It, you could also be fumigated, in which you would sit in basically a sauna and the vapours would be allowed to sort of sink into your skin. And there, there are many cases of doctors prescribing mercury in too great a dose and you end up with uh, heavy metal poisoning. So a lot of the symptoms mirror those in some respects of tertiary stage syphilis. So in, in many cases, the question of what's worse, the treatment or the cure. For gonorrhea, it's much more, well, it is much more invasive in that it's principally a question of irrigating the urethral passage. And so this is done with a variety of very unpleasant implements. For much of the 19th century, this is, and this is another reason why women were seen to be uh, particularly implicated in the spread of venereal diseases. They weren't thought to be affected by things like gonorrhea. They were seen to be carriers of the disease because a lot of women are asymptomatic when they have gonorrhea. And so there is an assumption that they are simply the purveyors of this disease and they're sort of merrily spreading it and infecting all these poor men. So being forcibly treated for these diseases was no light sentence, is what you're saying? The Lock Hospital is unusual in that under the Contagious Diseases Act, it did play a sort of penal role. It was a place of incarceration as much as it was of treatment. Um, and in, in many cases, patients are very reluctant to go there of their own volition um, because it's, it carries that stigma of incarceration and it carries that stigma of sexual misconduct. People know that if you've gone to the Lock Hospital, you've gone there because you have in some way transgressed the moral order and found yourself infected with syphilis or gonorrhea. The conditions in prisons would probably have been on par with some lock hospitals. Lock hospitals and workhouses um, are seen in this period to be very poor, unsanitary places. There, there, this is a period where there is no government funding for institutions like hospitals, and so places like lock hospitals are heavily reliant on the philanthropy of individuals. And so money is tight, they don't have the resources to maintain hygiene on wards, um, but a lack of sanitation and a lack of nutrition means that their infections are exacerbated. And why did these laws focus so intently on women in particular? So it focused uh, specifically on working class women, although in various parts of the UK, women from a variety of classes could also sort of fall foul of these laws. There was this sense, dual sense, of working class women being particularly immoral. With industrialization in the 19th century, you have large numbers of um, working class men and women coming to towns or cities like Portsmouth and Southampton, Manchester, Bradford, and these are seen as sites of urban decay in the 19th century. And it's particularly problematic for women because they're not often given Oh, they don't, they don't have the skills and they don't have the means to find stable employment. So a lot of them find themselves forced, in many respects, into prostitution. And so there is this perception that women are um, the principal uh, carriers of and spreaders of disease. 
And so this is why they're, they're being targeted by these laws. But also it's, it's a very utilitarian, a very mercenary set of pieces of legislation as well, in that it's targeting women in order to protect the health and well-being of military personnel. Was there any kind of acknowledgement at all of men's role in the transmission of disease or the role of men in the execution of these laws? It's a fantastic piece of testimony from a woman in one of these towns subjected to the legislation where she's talking about the role that men have played in what is sort of seen to be her moral downfall. And it's along the lines of, a man drove me to this life of prostitution through his mistreatment of me. After that, men have used me. Men have arrested me. Men have convicted me. Men have read the Bible at me in prison and in hospital. Men, as doctors, have forcibly treated me. And then men have thrown me back on the streets. And it's, it's a really, it sums up quite nicely the um, sort of very patriarchal, unequal world in which, the, in which they lived. Wow. So there was an awareness that there was something unfair about the way contagion was being handled. When were these laws ultimately repealed, and how did that come about? Yeah, so they were repealed in 1886, um, after a very long and rancorous campaign, both by um, nonconformist men but principally by the Women's National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. And this was led by a woman called Josephine Butler. And this women's association was formed because um, non-conforming women or middle-class women, who, as most of them were, were not permitted to join this group of non-conformist men in their fight against the Contagious Diseases Acts. So they had to form their own society. But in the end, it was Josephine Butler and her Ladies Association, which ended up generating the most public attention. And there was a lot of backlash against her campaign because it was seen to be uh, indecent for a woman, a respectable woman, to have anything to do with the Contagious Diseases Acts, to even be in public speaking about venereal diseases was thought to be completely abhorrent. Um, and this is very much part of this sexual double standard that you see in the 19th century. Hmm. So what tactics did these movements that were opposed to the Contagious Diseases Acts use? They used sort of both mainstream parliamentary channels so they would lobby MPs. Um, they would also hold meetings in town halls. Josephine Butler and her association also attempted to generate hostility towards the acts among the working classes themselves. So there are accounts of women going out into communities and door knocking in working class neighborhoods and trying to sort of generate indignation on the part of men and women. Um, and it's presented in this period as sort of an assault on British womanhood, the fact that a woman could be picked up off the street by a policeman and forcibly examined, regardless of whether or not she was seen to be breaking the law. She was just simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was seen as uh, 
a breach of British liberty, basically, and this is how it was being played in the media. Okay, so you have these movements opposed to the acts and a growing awareness of their inequality and unfairness, and you've got this successful repeal campaign. I'm wondering, did advancing medical knowledge about bacteria and infection also contribute at all to the way contagious diseases were dealt with, particularly after the acts were repealed, perhaps? So when the Contagious Diseases Acts were repealed in 1886, this is at the very beginning of what we call the bacteriological revolution. Doctors are now starting to speak with much more certainty about the microorganisms, the germs that cause syphilis and gonorrhea. Syphilis, or the, the microorganism that causes syphilis, the spirochete, isn't identified until 1906. But the gonococcus is identified in 1879. And what doctors are finding is that patients who are asymptomatic of gonorrhea have the gonococcus. And they're finding this particularly in women patients. And what this leads them to conclude is that a woman could present herself for examination, not demonstrate any observable physical symptoms, but still be infected and infectious. And what this means for things like the Contagious Diseases Acts is that under a system where you are looking just for physical symptoms, you're not going to be able to identify those who are infected and those who aren't. Hmm, right. But in addition to increasing medical knowledge of disease, there were shifting social norms as well? Yeah, there was a definite shift in the way that people perceived responsibility for infection and the spread of disease. So by the 1890s, you have what's called the New Woman Movement. Um, and this is sort of led by people like uh, Sarah Grand, who wrote a particularly scathing fictional account of a young woman whose life is blighted by the fact that she marries this um, reprobate who gives her syphilis and her child is born with congenital syphilis and dies a horrible death and the purpose of this literature was to generate sympathy for women who had previously been seen as the purveyors of disease and so the rhetoric about sin and responsibility is shifting quite dramatically in these decades and so it's no longer just the woman who is responsible um, so the rhetoric of blame is being um, spread out amongst several different groups of people. So this is usually a contemporary issues podcast, so you knew I would ask this next question. What relevance do the Contagious Diseases Acts have to us today? Why should we be thinking back on them now? It's an interesting example of how the government responds to infection that cannot be treated through sort of medical channels. In the period where the Contagious Diseases Acts were in place, syphilis and gonorrhea had no ready treatments. I mean, we discussed mercury and urethral irrigation, but neither of which actually brought about a reliable cure and they were often as terrible as the disease itself and the medical profession understood that these were not magic bullets. They, they knew that mercury wasn't curing syphilis but they didn't have anything better. And so you don't really see a shift in 
perceptions of how to manage disease until you start to get reliable treatments. In the 21st century, we are increasingly seeing um, antibiotic resistant strains of things like gonorrhea. And so it's important to think about the implications of this for the management of disease and what could be the likely outcomes or the likely problems with um, state infrastructure and public health provisions. So if you have a disease or a collection of diseases that are endemic and antibiotics are uh, ineffective against them, what other mechanisms are at your disposal for preventing the spread of these diseases? And in the 19th century, this was a very authoritarian, paternalistic mechanism. What can this tell us about the 21st century? Well, there are some very troubling parallels. And what are those parallels? Um, so the question is if antibiotics start to become ineffective in the prevention of disease or in the maintenance of population health, are we going to see a shift in disease management from the realm of medicine and the biomedical sciences back to legislators? Is it going to be, as we have come to understand it, an epidemiological problem? Or are we going to start conceptualizing these diseases within a very moralizing framework of guilt and responsibility? So what, what mechanisms are going to start coming into play if medicine is no longer working for us? What, what legal mechanisms are going to come into play to try and prevent the spread of these diseases? And who's going to get caught up in these legal frameworks? Well, thank you very much, Anne, for joining me today to talk about how our legal past can inform our present. It was a really interesting discussion. My pleasure. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Subscribe or follow us on iTunes, the Oxford Podcasting Service, or SoundCloud. Music